We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash match. Just go to Indeed.com slash match right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash match. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. EJ, it's that time of year again. It's Cowboys off-season hype time. Like clockwork, every single July. Can't wait. I think we got some nice things to say about the Cowboys, so I'm just going to get that out of the way first. That Man, every year is the golden year for the Cowboys, and if you look back over recent history, 20, 25 years, hasn't been ideal for them. That being said, this is a good team. That's the thing is like nobody generates hope like the Dallas Cowboys every Unmatched. single year. They're never bad ever. No. And that's that's what makes it fun is every single year you can plausibly go into the season and say, oh, I don't know, this one feels a little bit different. They feel a little bit more dangerous than normal. And then all of a sudden, you know, we've got Dak scrambling and, and trying to get the ball clocked and the season ends in the worst possible way and we're like, ah, shit. They got me again. They got again. me hyped again. Again. You know, but it's, it, it's, it's both fun and also probably painful to be a Cowboys fan for that reason. Because it, you never go into a year dreading it. You never go into a, a year where you're like, ah, this is not going to be a fun team to watch. They're always a fun team to watch. Mm-hmm. But in the back of your mind, you just know when January comes around, shit's going to get real sad real quick. You just never know exactly how, but you know it's coming. <laughs> the odds are against us. Uh, that being said, lots of fun stuff to talk about today, so we should probably launch into what they did last year in terms of how that disappointment unfolded and then talk about how this year's disappointment might unfold. <laughs> well, last year was overall a successful season by most franchise's standards they were 12 and 5 won the division 5 and 3 at home 7 and 2 on the road one of the best road teams in the entire league if not the best road team in the entire league 4 and 1 finished in their last 5 very strong finish very strong. until obviously playoffs when things went tits up completely no other way to sugarcoat it um but overall like this this was a very good season by yes. most franchise's standards the problem is the standard for the cowboys regardless of what's happened for the last 25 years, is win the Super Bowl. That's what they care about. Every single year, they go into it of like, oh, let's not be just a little bit better. They go into it like, we're winning the damn ring. And so 12-5 and five and going to the playoffs and winning the division, and it's not it's not good enough for, for Jerry. It's not good enough for the fan base. It's not good enough for the players, obviously, because they obviously had high expectations for themselves, too. And so it's it's just remarkable how we could look at a 12-5 and five record, which you know, 80% of the league would love. And yet it just feels like, God, there could have been more. 
I look, I'm a Bears fan. I would kill for 12 and 5. Like, <laughs> I'm not sure what I'd kill, but I'd kill something for 12 and 5. Might be small, but I would do it uh, for 12 and 5. I haven't sniffed 12 and 5 in a long time. And it is amazing to me that a team with this much talent, and that's really what works against it, is everybody's, oh, they have so much talent. It's all about the potential, right? And they basically achieve that potential, win the division, 12 wins uh, in a 17 game season look strong doing it beat some very quality opponents and it's still thought of as a very disappointing season in big d so let's talk about the power structure at the top because this has been a very stable franchise uh for a long time in terms of the decision makers uh decision makers i should say jesus christ brett form a word say a syllable um this is a weirdly similar to the Patriots, where it's a very familial operation. The Jones family is everywhere. And even the non-Joneses who run the team have been there for a long time. Jerry Jones, president and GM for 34 years now, but he's not really the GM anymore. It's GM in name only. In terms of the actual decision makers, it's going to be COO and EVP, director of player personnel, all the titles in the world, probably a doctor in there somewhere. <laughs> Reverend Stephen Jones, uh, as well as VP of Player Personnel Will McClay, who's been in the organization for 14 years. Those are really the two at the top that that run personnel. Um, I'm not entirely sure which one has more say over the other. It's probably more of a tandem type thing, but they've been working together for well over a decade at this point. And in my opinion, in terms of roster construction, this has been one of the better teams in the league, especially looking at how they draft. They've drafted really well for a really long time. And um, that's also part of the reason why the Cowboys feel like they can win it any given years, because even when they get into cap trouble every now and then, they still draft so well that it's never really bitten them in the ass that much. It's a... It's an interesting structure, and between the two, I'll tell you which one has more sway. It's the one whose last name is Jones. <laughs> but they've done really well. The, the time when the Cowboys didn't do well was when Jerry had say and sway and was exercising it all the time, and it was early in his tenure with the Cowboys. Now, he's been with, you know, he's owned the Cowboys for a long time now, and he learned hey, maybe it's not the best. Somebody else in the division, another owner, might learn that one day or get deposed and sent off to a foreign country. I'm not sure, but Jerry figured it out, and he handed it over and said, okay, I'm not going to... I'm not going to mess around in every football decision. And at that point, the Cowboys got damn good at player personnel, and they started building really solid rosters and making really good choices in the draft. And it was I remember that shift being like a, whoa, we were expecting the Cowboys to blow it because Jerry would interfere. He doesn't seem to be doing that anymore. And I don't know. They seem to be putting together a really good roster year after year. And they've held that now for a long time. That's the new norm for the Cowboys. So stable power structure and one that pretty much has it dialed in in terms of bringing new talent into the organization. That's what you really want. Now, when you get to the head coaching, maybe they don't have that quite as dialed. I, uh, yeah, Mike McCarthy, it, it, you know, it's, it's unfortunate because I think the coordinators under Mike McCarthy are all really good. Like the coordinator level for this, for this organization is awesome. 
Rod Davis, an assistant head coach, he's been there for three years. Kellen Moore, uh, at offensive coordinator. People give him a lot of shit, but at the end of the day, that was a very, very, very productive offense. Um, Dan Quinn was a revelation at defensive coordinator last year for them. Did a phenomenal job. Uh, and then John Vassell, year three at special teams. He's been a special teams coordinator for a long time in the league. All of their coordinators are great. Mike McCarthy's game management continues to be an issue and has been an issue for as long as I can remember, whether it's in Dallas, whether it's in Green Bay, whoever is in charge of timeouts or, you know, any sort of analytics-based decision like, you know, going forward on fourth down and, you know, aggressiveness in the red zone, all that kind of stuff. They need to take that away from Mike McCarthy because when it comes to all the other head coach stuff, fine, yeah, he's, he's all right. The game management shit... Somebody else needs to do it because I swear to God, one of the reasons why this team has been so disappointing with all their talent is because of the nauseating game management decisions at the worst possible time by this head coach. And they are so talented and their coordinators are so good. And almost it almost feels like sometimes that doesn't matter if you're not leveraging that talent and those play callers in the right situations with game management decisions on fourth downs and red zone opportunities. It is so annoying watching those tiny little decisions wreck what otherwise should be a juggernaut of a team. And you say all the other head coaching stuff. And I'm like, we just said that their coordinators are awesome and pretty much left to run their own fiefdoms and do it really well. And game management is terrible, and that needs to be taken away. So that leaves him with, quote-unquote, all the other head coach stuff. And I'm like, what exactly is that? I'm trying to be nice because I don't know what else he does. I don't know what else there is to do. If you have coordinators that are very apt, very capable at their jobs, and operating at a high level with the talent they have that the front office has brought into the team, and you suck it. Game management, because you do. This is my shocked face as a Bears fan. He did the exact same thing in Green Bay. The fact that he got another job after that, after he wasted all those very talented teams in Green Bay with very similar behavior, and then he said, no, no, I'm a changed man. I sat at my kitchen table for a year. Please give me all your money. And two weeks after that said, I, I didn't really do half of that. I he literally said that in an interview two weeks after he got hired. He was like, I didn't actually watch all the games. Like, they just paid me. And I'm like, huh? <laughs> At that point, like, I'm firing him, taking a loss, and moving on. He's still there, and he is still mucking things up. And it is one of the major Achilles heels of a very talented Dallas organization, front office, roster, coaching staff in general, except for the head coach. He needs to be, like, put up in the box and put headphones on him and play music or something. Just let him sit if you're still going to pay him because they've got to get past that. And so many teams, we've seen so many teams that now have a coach or a staffer dedicated to that, dedicated to figuring out those situations, having the chart, being an advisor. They don't make the call, so to speak, but they say, hey, two things you can do here this is the better one this is the riskier one you you pick but don't do this this or this right and the cowboys don't seem to have that maybe they have that role on their staff but it's not labeled that way and if they do they should probably fire that person too because they're (laughs) 
they're not doing it very well. And they need to improve there because it is the difference between some key wins and some key, I'll say, missed opportunities, things like points at the end of a half. Mm -hmm. They're not great at that, and they need to be because if they can flip that, come back out, get the second half kickoff, you can basically score twice and put a lot of these games out of reach with an offense that we're going to talk about here is is pretty loaded, very, very talented. But if you're saying, ah, we should just kneel down with the you know minute 15 we have left or run it three times up the middle and go to the locker room, that's outdated thinking, and it costs the Cowboys at least a couple victories per year, which... The race is going to get tighter in this division. They can't afford it. Bright side, all of the coaches under the coordinators are just as intriguing as the coordinators themselves. A lot of former players, a lot of guys that I didn't even realize were in the coaching game now are on this staff. And it's one of the most interesting staffs, I think, in the league, just from the the sheer amount of playing experience and worldly experience that's kind of assembled among all these assistants yeah for notable coaches on the offensive side i would agree with you that this is uh it's the world's most interesting man right it's the <laughs> it's the league's most interesting staff um starts off with joe philbin he's the o-line coach for the cowboys used to be the head coach for the dolphins tons of experience there skip pete is the running backs coach want to give a shout out to skip pete i love watching running back play cowboys have developed very good running back play over the years, and it's no surprise. He's been coaching running backs for the last 25 years in some capacity at some institution. Um, began his career as a grad assistant under Mike McCarthy at Pitt in 1988. Mm -hmm. So, again, those those connections never go away. It was his very first coaching gig. He ends up coaching under him as a head coach in Dallas. He also happens to be Rodney Pete's brother, uh, for those that remember Rodney Pete, the quarterback. Scott Tolzien, coaching assistant. He's a former NFL backup with the Chargers, Packers, and Colts. Uh, and Chase Hazlitt is uh, offensive quality control, and he is Jim Hazlitt's son. So, again, more family connections on that side. Then we swap to the defense and special teams side, and this is where the interesting really cranks up for me. George Edwards Sr., uh, sorry, George Edwards is a senior defensive assistant. So, again, one of those sort of more amorphous titles. 23 NFL seasons, 31 overall as a coach. Coached defensive line at Georgia for one season, 1997. That's the year that Richard Seymour and Marcus Stroud both got drafted in the first round out of the Georgia defensive line. So it goes way back with George Edwards, but he coached many other athletes since then and had great success. This is the one where you said worldly that really got me. <laughs> Aiden Durda is the defensive line coach. Now, he played linebacker in NFL Europe for six seasons, including a stint with the Scottish Claymores, one of the greatest mascots ever, Was then went on to be the head of football development at NFL UK, led that program, including coaching fellowships and the program where NFL UK participants could come over on roster exemptions, the international roster exemption as we know it now, uh, and then started coaching. So went from player to sort of league and football development and then came and started coaching, coached with the Falcons under Dan Quinn before joining Dallas and now is the lead defensive line coach for Dallas. Fascinating career arc all the way around. He's originally from England. Leon Lett is assistant defensive line coach under Aiden, former 11-year NFL defensive lineman, primarily with the Cowboys, but also had a cup of coffee with the Broncos at the end. 
and Al Harris coaching defensive backs. Now this there comes. We go. This comes from the the Green Bay side for sure. Former 15-year NFL DB. Now, most people know that the average career in the NFL is about 3.8 years if you average out all the players. An exceptional career is 10 years or even 10 years with the same team. That's a that is a rare career in the NFL to go half again that much overall in the league. A 15-year career with the Eagles, Packers, Dolphins, and Rams. Al Harris was a great player when he was in the league, and he went right into coaching. Not surprising. Mike McCarthy's staff is as good a landing place for him as any because he has familiarity with Coach McCarthy from his time with the Packers. Um, just top to bottom, lots of experience, former players, uh, folks from different leagues, different roles, college pros. As you said, a very experienced staff from the coordinators all the way down to the position coaches and even the quality control coaches. Lots to draw from for Dallas. I love this staff. Well, 97% of this staff. <laughs> All I, I really except do. for the top of the pyramid. I'm uh, telling you what, if they just get Sean Payton in in here after a year, which, I don't know, I have a conspiracy theory that I think a lot of other people share that that's secretly the plan. You just put Sean Payton in charge of this staff. Like You don't even have to change anything. I, I, Perennial you know. NFC favorite. Then I'm going to buy into that hype, that Cowboys. Yeah. I mean, I already do. I always buy into the hype. I, I'm a sucker for it. But, I, I mean, I will be insatiable for the Dallas Cowboys. If you put Sean Payton on the staff, especially with this much talent, it would be insane. But, I, yeah, all their assistants top to bottom from the coordinator level on down are just excellent. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Um, in terms of free agency losses and gains. This is kind of the meat of the episode because this was my biggest question <laughs> with this team's ability to maybe exceed what they did last year, which I mentioned these questions last episode. Well, this was the kind of uh, part of it for me. So they went into this offseason with one of the, the lowest effective cap spaces in the league. They were negative 4 million effective cap space as of February. An effective cap space is basically their projected cap space after they sign, you know, 51 players to the roster, you know, meet the minimums, all that kind of stuff. Um, and so they they had money issues. Now, they did do some things to clear that cap space. They did structure or restructures with Dak and Zach Martin, which cleared up like $22 million, um, but they still had to do a lot more. And so they had to make some tough decisions. They traded away Amari Cooper. And I... I want to preface this by saying I understand why. Again, they needed to shed money because they wanted to keep their pass rush together of Randy Gregory and Tank Lawrence. They were able to get Tank Lawrence back for $13.3 million uh, in terms of retentions with guys they already had. They tried to, to get Randy Gregory. There were some contracts or some financial or salary forfeiture, that's the right word. Salary for salary forfeiture language. <laughs> Jesus Christ, Brett. Uh, in you the contract. It the first time. I know, I know. I just, uh, that's, what we, that's what happens when we record three podcasts in one day. 
Um, but there was some salary forfeiture language in the contract that caused him to pull out. But the reason why they traded Amari Cooper was to free up themselves to be able to keep that pass rush together. The hard part was like literally the next day, Christian Kirk signed that deal with Jacksonville, completely changed the wide receiver market where everybody's like, yeah, Amari Cooper for 20 million. I don't know if you want to do Amari Cooper for 20 million. It's like, well, Christian Kirk's getting 18 something. So Amari Cooper for 20 million doesn't sound that bad. And they gave him up for a fifth round pick. If they waited like 48 more hours to do that trade, Amari Cooper would be traded for a lot more than the fifth round pick because then people would see the value considering the new receiver market of Amari Cooper at quote unquote only 20 million when you got AJ Brown making 25, uh, you know, Justin Jefferson's going to make 30. So I think that really hurt. And it was necessary. I understand why. They needed money. They were trying to keep their defensive line together. They tried, but they couldn't do that anyway. But that one just, it just hurt. Um, Not to mention Cedric Wilson is now gone. Um, He's in in Miami. Um, Keanu Neal is now a Buccaneer. Randy Gregory, as I mentioned, is a Bronco. Lyle Collins is in Cincinnati. Um, Even DeMonte Casey is in Pittsburgh now. He played a whole lot of snaps for them at safety. So there was a lot of guys, key players, both starters and rotational guys, key players that are no longer on that roster. And yes, they did do a couple key retentions, like Michael Gallup's back for 11-5, which at the current wide receiver market is good. Like J. Ron Kirsch for $5 million. I love that, considering the role he plays. Lawrence at 13.3, as I mentioned, is a good deal. Dalton Schultz, they franchised for less than $11 million. All of that's fine. But losing Amari, losing Cedric Wilson, losing Randy Gregory, it's tough. And I do unfortunately feel like a lot of the teams we've talked about in this series got better during free agency. The Cowboys were one of the few teams that I feel like their losses actually outweighed their retentions and gains. Specifically about the wide receiver piece, this is being a little bit of the victim of your own success. Cowboys wide receiver group was as strong as any in the league, and I will die on that hill. They were four solid deep. You got CeeDee Lamb, you got Gallup, you got Amari Cooper, and then Sid Wilson was kind of the super sub in that group to the tune of he went and signed a seven-plus million-dollar contract in free agency. They knew the balloon payment was coming on that receiver core, and they weren't going to be able to retain all four, so they had to pick. And and CD's going to be a fixture after his rookie season in in Dallas. That that was decided. Then it really came down to, are we going to pay Amari $20 million? Are we going to pay Gallup a little bit less because we really like Michael Gallup? And I think we'll be in on Wilson, but if it goes over a certain point, which is probably – five-ish million, five and a half million, we're going to have to let him go because we want to be able to keep our defensive line and we need money to put other places because we didn't start with gobs of cash at the beginning of this process. And so they made the decision, look, we're going to pay CD when that comes up. We think Gallup's going to be a little bit less than Cooper. Cooper's going to be, again, at the time they let him go, top of the market, which is now decidedly middle third of the market <laughs> um but they just said look we can't we can't keep four and that's 
it's a great thing that their personnel acquisition brought them four super quality receivers. That that lineup one to four, I would put up against any one to four in the NFL, and you'd probably win. Like there are better threes, but when you add in said Wilson, who I have a ton of respect for, and I think he's going to do well with the Dolphins, one to four is great. They can't pay them all. Like receivers an expensive position, so they kind of had to do it. Yes, the timing was unfortunate, and then you throw in the Gregory contract language stuff on top of it, which, again, wasn't really their fault, but happens. They put a good faith offer out there, fell apart in the end. So they lose two really important players. The Lyle Collins move, great for Cincinnati. I love that for Cincinnati. Keep Joe Burrow upright. I am in that camp. For the Cowboys, kind of stinks, right? And it basically forces them as we'll see later on, to use one of their draft picks to say, nope, we gotta we gotta start restocking the line. We lost a very quality piece. And the others are all contributors. I mean, we don't talk a lot about DeMonte Casey. He has a lot of snaps, played well for them. Keanu Neal, when he was healthy, played really well for them. Um, Blake Jarwin was big in their, you know, two and three tight end sets. Uh, these are all, you know, contributors that you have to go out and replace. And it gets expensive when you start with no money it's it's rough and i do want to make it clear like their plan was prioritize the pass rush keep the pass rush together because when things were up and down with the offense the pass rush is what kept that team together in particular the depth in the pass rush because they they took injuries to multiple guys and they had to move micah parsons around and you know credit dan quinn for that because in the early in the early half of the season they didn't really have micah and gregory and tank all together at the same time it was you know you either have two of the three or one of the three and they they had to move all of them around and so they learned that lesson of like hey we need to be deep at edge because you know we <laughs> you need at least three guys on any given defensive line to get the quarterback and you never know when you're going to catch injuries in bunches so they really prioritize keeping that depth at edge and they had it and then all of a sudden they didn't <laughs> and so now they're they're left with like 22 million in cap space they didn't want 22 million in cap space they wanted randy gregory so it, it you could kind of see um you know in the in the moves they made after that like they picked up dante fowler for three million it wasn't great um for the Falcons last year, like he was their most productive edge rusher, but that's not saying much for the Falcons. <laughs> yeah. And he, yeah, 3 million sounds about right for Dante Fowler, but he's not Randy Gregory, not even close to Randy Gregory. Like Gregory was the plan and the plan fell apart. And that's, that's what pains me, you know, looking at this Cowboys off season is I knew, I knew what the plan was. You could see they had a plan and they were so close to executing it. And then just that little hiccup with the salary forfeiture language blew up what they were planning to do since the end of last season. To their credit, though, they did pivot a little bit in the draft and, you know, make some moves to replenish some of the talent they lost, both at tackle and edge and, you know, kind of future-proofing tight end and everything like that. But, boy, if I was them, I, I still would rather have Randy Gregory. And so would they. Uh, Dante Fowler, nice get for $3 million. You know, you save $11 million, but a lot of that would have been earned by Randy Gregory. I'm with you. So they go into the draft with some defined needs, and that's mm, less, less fun than saying, hey, we can go almost best player available. We're not going to be driven by our needs. Cowboys were driven by two major needs, and they were both on the line, the offensive line and the defensive line. So 
They start out round one, pick 24. They get Tyler Smith, the absolute mauler out of Tulsa. Now, he's listed at offensive tackle. That's what he played in college. You and I had multiple debates. If you listen to bootleg anytime during draft season, we talked multiple times about Tyler Smith. Love him as a player. You thought he was decent as a tackle. I really thought he was going to be all world as a guard. Currently listed at guard, but there's been reports out of camp. Again, it's all early. He's a rookie. They've been giving him snaps at tackle, seeing where he plays best. I imagine he'll settle at guard because he's going to maul people there. And they have a need there as well. So that's a good thing for them. But they were they needed one more piece. Could be guard, could be tackle. They needed one more to make a best five. They went out and got Tyler Smith first round. Second round, pick 56. This is the most Cowboys pick ever. Sam Williams, the outside linebacker, edge rusher out of Ole Miss. Very talented player. Uh troubling stuff off the field which red flagged him on many teams boards i feel this is such a lock i feel stupid for not having said it pre-draft <laughs> this is the most you knew it was cow- coming <laughs> this is the most cowboys on brand pick ever and it is their hope that he will become something between one of the guys they re-signed dorrance armstrong who was like basically an undrafted free agent the year he came out and randy gregory or demarcus lawrence he has the talent to match those two guys on the field eventually as he develops his approach to the game and being a professional is going to determine what range he falls in he's got all the skill in the world great pass rusher had great success in the sec it's got to stay focused and on the field for them uh but again cowboys are very used to dealing with pass rushers who have a variety of focus Round three, pick 88, Jalen Tolbert, the big wide receiver out of South Alabama, USA. Uh, great outside <laughs> threat, right? He's a People say mm-hmm. he was a true number one. I don't think that's true. I think he's a good boundary receiver, and he needs to be getting down the field. Big, athletic guy, strong, good catch radius. Not the greatest variety of routes run in college and not the greatest nuance in doing so, but physically he can just outmuscle you down the field. He's fast. He's big. He's going to fit in. He's got a role. Um, we talked about it pre-show a little bit that this is the guy that when you go to a three-wide receiver set, they want CD as the big slot. They run enough concepts that really fit him in that role and he's very productive there that you slide him inside you put tolbert outside let him run down the boundary Dak can hit him if he needs to he's gonna have a couple of long completions as a rookie good pick for them pick four you talked about future proofing tight end that's jake ferguson the tight end out of wisconsin good two-way player uh i think better in the passing game and really the sort of possession passing game yes he can get down the seam but he is really good at finding space turning his back on the defense putting his numbers at the quarterback and making those tough catches for first downs ken block certainly coming out of wisconsin a lot of people said oh he's he's a great blocker i don't think he's a great blocker but he is a good blocker he's a functional blocker and these days for a tight end that's good enough to be a true two-way tight end so Good pick by them, especially down in the fourth. This was a deep tight end draft. They take advantage of that. Mm-hmm. Round five, pick 155, Matt Willetsko, the offensive tackle from North Dakota. Not North Dakota State, North Dakota. Athletic specimen. Huge, again, uh, this is a Cowboys pick, right? You look at Tyron Smith, like huge athletic specimen that they can mold into oh, an offensive they, line they just draft off ras i swear to god any I, ras over nine they're like yeah fine 
Well, let's us. go solidly in that territory. So going to be developmental tackle for them. Um, has all the potential to be a Colton Miller, to be any of these huge offensive tackles that have a pretty amazing feet, actually. He's got great feet. He's got to figure out some parts of his game, but all the tools are there. They just have to come together. If anybody can develop them, you know, hey, give them to Joe Philbin. Let him see what happens. Second pick in round five for them, 167, one of my favorites, Deron Bland. They have him listed at cornerback. He was more of a safety at Fresno State. Absolute freaking hammer. Mm -hmm. Bangs. If you like hitters, if you liked Keanu Neal coming out, like Deron Bland is not bland at all, and he's not quite (laughs) as big as Neal, he's going to lay some people out. He is super fun. I love this pick special teams immediately but probably also immediately in three safety packages he is not a not a bad base defense defensive back um corner safety i care a little bit less in the modern designation it doesn't really matter he's gonna be in the alley running the alley or somewhere close to the line and he's gonna light some people up he is afraid of no one I'd be willing to bet that in their three safety packages, it's going to be uh, specifically against 11 versus teams that like to split out their tight ends because they like to use J. Ron Curse. Yeah, um, as the eraser. As the anti-big slot. But if you still want to do a too high structure out of that, Bland is going to be in there because he can fill the alley and you know support the run from that depth. So I'm right there with you. Like He's going to get playing time. It'll just be in that package for now, but he'll be on the field just for that. Yeah, I loved him. He was some people like Ben Fennell who who do deep digging like I do were were on Bland even before I was. Um, DJ really liked him. People that dug into Fresno State's defense because there was a little bit more on Fresno State's offense. They had an edge rusher as well. But as soon as you saw him light somebody up, you're like, what number was that? All right, <laughs> who is that guy? Um, round five, the last – I was going to say the last pick in round five, they had – Four picks in round five? That's amazing. Uh, Third pick in round five, pick 176. So, again, they had 155, 167. This is 176, and then they had 178. So, within, you know, 20-something picks, they get four. Yeah. Yeah. Unreal. One of my favorite picks, unfortunate in that he got injured, but Damone Clark, the linebacker from LSU, um, not going to play right off, needs to heal up, but I had him rated higher than many other inside linebackers who were much more publicized in this draft. Unfortunately, he suffered a pre-draft injury, so drops all the way down to the fifth round. Again, the Cowboys taking an injured linebacker who had a great profile. Um, where have we heard this before? Yeah, not, <laughs> not surprising again when it happens you go oh man of course um if he comes back to full health and more guys are coming back from his injury more quickly i think than ever before he's going to be a real asset for them he will be he's a starting caliber linebacker out of the sec um great value for them way down at the bottom of uh round five last pick in round five 178 john ridgeway the defensive tackle from arkansas big straight line penetrator brawler um limited in his skill set but man he can he is a physical dude that will get off the ball and abuse people um not a lot of technique and savvy necessarily about getting around people running big loop stunts um not super patient in his rushes but he is a guy that wants to just get in there and mix it up 
So he's going to figure into that rotation again, bring fresh fire breathers off the ball. They're going to run him in for five, eight snaps a game and go, you know, 64, go, go, yeah, go, go just roll 64. Okay, coach. Cool. I'll do that. Uh, last pick was round six, 193, Devin Harper, the linebacker from Oklahoma State. We watched the other linebacker from Oklahoma State, uh, but didn't have a real read on Harper. Did you? Uh, I had a UDFA grade on him. I thought he was like pure special teams. So I'm assuming that's what they're drafting him here for is just special teams. Got to replenish the coffers because especially, you know, the depth took a hit with the lack of money. So just bring in guys. Usually around this time of the draft is when you start to see, uh, you know, John Fassel basically tap Stephen Jones on the shoulder and be like, hey, can you can you give me that guy who's 230 and can run? I, I really need I really need bodies here. So that's that's the kind of read I got on that pick. In terms of overall um, build strategy here, it was very much uh, trying to maintain the level they were at last year. I don't necessarily think they took a step forward from what the roster was last year because they lost so many guys in the free agency period. But that being said, I think they took they did a great job of getting the roster back to that same level just to kind of like even it out. Um, you know, Tyler Smith, like they they really needed more offensive line depth. Whether he's the swing tackle or Willets goes the swing tackle, I'm not entirely sure. If we're just talking about getting best five on the field, I'd be willing to bet that he's left guard. And then, because um, I, I, well, he, he could play tackle or guard, but I do think he's left guard day one just to get best five on the field. And then, well, let's go is your swing. Um, again, they, they really needed just to, to maintain order along the offensive line. Uh, Sam Williams, you're losing Randy Gregory. That pick directly is, I think, tied to losing Randy Gregory. I don't think they make that pick if they, if they keep Randy. I think they no. spend it on something else. Jalen Tolbert. Uh, I see a lot of the same uh, jump ball ability outside that Michael Gallup has. And so with Michael Gallup missing probably six weeks, maybe more coming off injury, getting a guy who Dak can reliably throw 50-50 balls to outside, I think was of utmost importance. And then when Gallup does come back, you know, he and he and Tolbert in their 11 personnel package will be the outside guys. And as you mentioned, CDs in the slot. But for the first like eight weeks of the season, I bet they stick mostly in 12. And and it's just CD and Tolbert uh, as the two starters. And then you'll have uh, Schultz and Jake Ferguson, who's basically just another Dalton Schultz as your two tight end package. And then you're running the ball a lot. Uh, you're, you're throwing off play action, all that kind of stuff. And then um, towards the back half of the year, I think they're going to mix in more 11. Um, Deron Bland, like I mentioned, I think is, is going to have a role in that three safety package when they like to drop curse down to take away tight ends. Damone Clark, I have no expectations for as a rookie. No. None, but 2023 could get spicy. This is a team that loves to take a chance on linebackers. Absolutely loves it. So that was a great pick from that standpoint. Um, so overall, I, I do think they did a good job filling the holes that were created in March by taking guys in April, but I don't necessarily think the roster has taken a step forward from last season. They are very much just trying to keep up in the arms race and not fall behind to Philly and not fall behind to Tampa and all those guys. They did what they could. Financially, they were in a tough spot, so they did what they could. 
And overall, considering the plan they drew up and where they ended up, they this was probably the best case scenario. I still think that other teams took larger steps forward this offseason. But at least when you throw in the draft, the Cowboys still have a shot. They still... Um, they still can win the division. They still can make a run for first seed. It's going to be harder. I think it's really going to be harder than it was last year. Uh, it's a tougher schedule than they had last year, too. But they still at least gave themselves a chance, which for Cowboys fans, that's that's kind of all you can ask for at this point. Yeah, it definitely felt more like refill than load up for a run. And again, this is a 12-win team. If you're refilling, you're doing a pretty good job in terms of uh, topping that roster off. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. They also, because they had limited financial resources, took advantage of the UDFA period, of the undrafted free agent period, and brought in a lot of quality guys. Guys, there's at least five guys on this list that I'm going to highlight that I had draftable grades on and thought would get drafted. We'll start off with wide receiver reloads. Ty Freifogel, the wide receiver from Indiana, going to be more of an inside possession guy or sort of an outside route guy a little bit like Tyler Lockett without all the athleticism but had a better 2020 than 2021 fell off a little bit in 2021 and that sort of dimmed his star a little bit if we're talking about the Cowboys they get him undrafted um if you'd asked GMs a year ago if Ty Freifogel was going to go undrafted they would have laughed you out of the room <laughs> he was absolutely going to get drafted after 2020 falls out Dontario Drummond, wide receiver from Mississippi. This is one of Matt Corral's wide receivers and the big possession guy outside. This is the third down, absolute catch, big body guy. Braylon Sanders was the faster, speedier sort of boundary guy. Very productive. Dontario Drummond was wide receiver one in that offense. They get him again undrafted. He didn't run super well right before the draft, but I don't care. If you go watch his tape in the SEC, he's beating a lot of corners that got drafted and again, they pick him up for free. Peyton Hendershot, the tight end from Indiana, Ty Freifogel's teammate, feels like they got a type, and they just they just keep punching those tickets. They're like, yep, he looks like Dalton Schertz, looks like Blake Jarwin. Sign him up. We'll take him. They get Peyton Hendershot for free. Big Cat Bryant, the edge rusher from UCF and other schools, the very first guy that we got to interview at Shrine Bowl this year. Very talented guy. Um not young, but plenty of experience playing for really good schools and has a great pressure rate. So if you're trying to reload that pass rush, you didn't get to keep Randy Gregory, you're not sure how Dante Fowler is going to play, you get a shot at a guy like Big Cat Bryant and it doesn't cost you any draft capital, do that. Same with Mike Tafua from Utah, another guy we hope to see at the Shrine Bowl, but he had to pull out of Shrine Bowl because of injury, so we didn't get to see him play there. But his tape at Utah was the same thing. Um, super aggressive, slightly undersized edge rusher, had several really good seasons in the Pac-12. He comes in for free as well, probably an injury concern there. 
Aaron Hansford, linebacker, inside linebacker from Texas A&M. Uh, again, athletic, special teamer, runner right now, hitter. Needs to work on coverage a little bit, but he can do that, and he doesn't have to start. Refill that linebacker coffer. And then we get to the secondary. they got a couple of corners, but really want to talk about the safeties they pulled in. Marquise Bell, the safety from Florida A&M, was my, one of my 10 gems on defense this year. Big, 6'3", well over 200 pounds, runs and hits. Mm -hmm. He is very lanky, can gum up a lot of passing lanes with his length, but he will come from depth and smack you. His game reminds me a lot of tall, big-hitting safeties. I say oh, so Chancellor. J-Ron Curse? Yeah, <laughs> J-Ron. <laughs> I'm going to say this having not had the greatest grade on J-Ron Curse coming out. J-Ron Curse was one of those guys I was super excited about from the year before when I got to writing my full write-up the year he came out. I watched all his tape, and I went, ooh, I actually don't like him as much. His limitations showed up more than I liked, so I dropped my grade a little bit, and I, I think I stand by my pre-draft grade. He's done a great job as a professional continuing to develop his game. Coming out of college, and that's the big caveat, that's the star, I like Marquise Bell better than J. Ron Curse. So if he continues to develop in the pros, I think his ceiling is higher than Curse, and I have a lot of respect for Curse, the current version of Curse as a pro. So that's high praise. Getting him as a UDFA, no idea why that's a thing. Like if you Small watch his school tape, kid, large class. Yeah, yeah I you know. still think even as a special teams flyer, sixth or seventh, the idea that he actually got out and was a UDFA inexcusable given his level of play to me and the last one's Wanye Thomas from Georgia Tech not a guy I had on my radar before we saw him at Shrine Bowl and he made a bunch of plays throughout mm -hmm. the week not the super big plays but the solid plays the tough plays the not flashy plays that safeties that play in the NFL safeties that get snaps make and i went back for a second look after we came back from shrine and i put a draftable grade on Wanya thomas low round but draftable grade so i'm not shocked that he didn't get drafted but when i saw him end up in dallas i thought oh man that's a great value that's a player that will stick on a roster i would be really surprised if Wanya thomas is not on the roster or the practice squad when we get to the season he is a player Again, I think this just kind of continues the theme of we lost our stars. You know, we lost several depth pieces because of how we had to maneuver the cap. Let's just shotgun this thing and, and see if we can get, you know, another Dorrance Armstrong, uh, you know, another Jaron Curse, who was a, a they they spent nothing to get him originally. Um, like th this team has done a good job of of identifying day three and UDFA talent in the past. And so I think they're just, they're just shotgunning and seeing if they can do it again. Um, in particular, I think Big Cat Bryant or Mike Tafua, one of those guys will make the roster. Not sure if both of them will, but one of them yeah. will. If I had to bet on one of them, I might go Mike Tafua, but it's tough because he's one of those older prospects at Utah who's like, literally a grown-ass man playing against 19-year-olds. So sometimes those guys can be a little tough to project in the NFL. But his tape was legitimately really good. Um, Aaron Hansford, I think, 
actually has a legit shot to make the roster over Devin Harper. I had a higher grade on Hansford than I did on Harper. We'll see. Um, But either way, whoever doesn't make it's going to end up on the practice squad. They'll probably defer to the kid they drafted, but just going off by pre-draft grade, I I would probably lean towards Hansford. And then Marquise Bell. I think he's just so athletic and his upside is so high that he's got to make it too. I understand they have a lot of safeties. They've got Curse. They've got Hooker. They've got Donovan Wilson. Um, I just, I, I think he makes it. He has to. And if he doesn't, I, I wouldn't say no to the Bears picking him up because I think that I think he's exactly what they need to complement who they already have. Like he's just he's too athletic. I, I would I would want my DB coach to have that kind of guy to mold. Yeah, if you could do practice squad to practice squad moves, and if he ends up on the practice squad, and you could do that. Of course, if you're going to sign a player off another team's practice squad, you've got to sign him to your starting 53. I don't know how long they have to be there, though, with the new practice squad rules. Is there a squad no... rules change every year, so I don't right. even know. <laughs> Is there a no drop-back rule? Because if you could bring him up and leave him on your starting roster for maybe a couple weeks while somebody came back from injury and then put him on your practice squad with the new practice squad rules, I would be looking to do that with players like Bell, like Thomas, um, depending on how Tefua works out, how his health is. Uh, and then if I was, you know, receiver deficient and I didn't have that role, I didn't have a really good, you know, possession receiver with size and my offense needed that, I'm I'm really surprised given the level of competition and the level of production that Dontario Drummond didn't get didn't get picked so if i was a little bit short in the receiver core and could really use that guy that is just going to be able to post up on almost anybody and get seven eight nine yards on a hook and in i would do it he's he's got the resume for it that's for sure also one more note i also think alec lindstrom is going to make the rosters the backup to biotish um uh, even though he's a udfa Ooh, and i they forgot to have... highlight alec lindstrom that's my bad i'm gonna yeah he's he's right one of the the five or six best center prospects in this class. So I think he makes it too. And if he doesn't make it, he's going to make a roster somewhere. He's too good not to. But I do think that he's a perfect fit for what they like to do in that run game. It's very zone heavy. That's exactly what he does. Solid pass protector. I think he's got a very, very, very good chance of making the rosters. Biotish's backup and maybe eventually push him for starting snaps. We'll see. Not that Biotish is like bad, but I, I do think that Lindstrom is underrated i would say as a center prospect uh all right final segment team floor team ceiling i have the exact same team floor and ceiling as i did for philly spoiler alert but i don't feel quite as good about it because of all the things that we mentioned where it's okay the they're replacing a lot of capable veterans with young players that they're hoping can immediately play to that level um we love their coordinators, but game management has always been an issue. We like Dak, but one of his best receivers is going to be missing like the first six or so games of the year, if not more. We love their offensive line, but you can never quite be confident in Tyron Smith playing every game of the year. And when Tyron's out, traditionally, they have really suffered. So it's it's still a 12-win ceiling, but I'm not feeling quite as confident about them hitting that 12 as say I would be in Philly but I still have the same eight win floor because I still think they're too talented 
to go below that. So it's it's one of those where it's like it could be the same. Not quite feeling the same level of confidence though. Yeah, we matched up on this one. Twelve win ceiling, eight win floor. And I, like you, am more confident to lean towards the bottom. It feels more to me like Dallas is a regression candidate. You know, many of the things that we said for Philadelphia hold true. They have basically the same coaching staff. They didn't have any notable losses on their coaching staff, so they're familiar. It's not a new system. Um, They retain many of their key starters, including their quarterback, all that's good. So you'd say, well, why doesn't that mean they'll win 12 games again? Well, winning 12 games is a hard thing to do in the NFL, number one. And number two, they didn't add as many pieces in free agency or the draft as Philadelphia did. Um, they, you know, they finished mm, strongly, uh, but not, uh, you know, it's the same strength of the finish, right? You're talking about four and one in their last five. So we talked about momentum and schedule. Like they have the same, largely the same scheduled opponent. They play in division, of course, and then they have the same shared outside division. So largely the same schedule. It just feels like, boy, they're going to miss those two receivers a little bit. Boy, are they going to, are they going to split carries with the running backs who are both very talented and give Tony Pollard a little bit more run you know, give Zeke a little bit more rest or are they just going to keep riding him because they paid him, right? Are they going to make the right decisions? We talked about end of half points and and other game management decisions. They just feel ripe to fall off that 12 where it feels like Philly feels primed to ascend to that 12 and and take the mantle, take the division. Um, So, you know, I could see either. If they repeat and win 12 games, I wouldn't be surprised at all, given all the continuity they have. If they slid down and won nine, I, you know, basically flip-flopped with Philadelphia from last year, I wouldn't be surprised either. Oh, Cowboys, the hype season continues. It's, uh, it, it's a yearly tradition where we get excited but cautiously excited. Because <laughs> once again, we know in the back of our head. Once we get to January... Whole different ball game. Whole different ball game. Will they get over the the hump this year? Maybe. Meh. <laughs> uh. Uh, all right. Tomorrow, NFC East macro recap: predicting division MVP, predicting offensive and defensive player of the year, rookie of the year, all that kind of stuff. There is going to be plenty of Cowboys representation in that episode because they have a lot of great players, and um, they might actually have the most valuable player in the division too. But wait to find out there and we'll be picking our division winner again we have philly and dallas with the exact same floor and ceiling which one will we pick to win the division Hmm. tough to say but uh come back tomorrow for that we'll be talking all things nfc east from a macro perspective and then we are moving on to the north next week afc north comes first so uh hope to see you back here tomorrow and until then later take care Powerful as Cox Internet? Powerful enough to let your band members in Vegas, Phoenix, and Rhode Island jam like you're all in the same garage. Get gig speeds powered by fiber from Cox. It's internet built for tomorrow, today. 
Cox, always building better. Download speeds up to one gigabit per second. Cox Internet is connected to the premises via coaxial connection. Speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Cox terms and other restrictions may apply.